This week we will continue the first half, conclude, sorry, the first half of our We Believe series, where we've been looking at some of the foundational doctrines, understandings that we hold here at Calvary. Next week we start Advent. Yeah, Christmas really is that close. And then after Advent, we're going to pick back up with this series before Lent. Last week we took a look at the second article of the Apostles' Creed. We looked at Jesus and all that he has done for us. This week we'll be moving on to the third and final article of the Creed. And it reads, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As we look into this article, our text for the morning will be found in John chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 25 to 27. As we've talked about before, the book of John, uh, sorry, as we've talked about before with the book of John, we know that it's, it's written a little out of order. He wasn't, John wasn't as concerned with the timeline events as he was with the themes that he is bringing out in his gospel. So the conversation, though it takes place near the middle of his book, is a conversation that happens after the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. He's, he's telling them about how he isn't going to be with them for much longer. They're understandably concerned about this. And towards the end of the conversation they have that night, we get our text this morning. Again, it's John chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to follow along. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you prefer, but the words will also be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord, John 14, 25 to 27. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the Lord gives. Sorry, as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you for your word, Lord. Pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I know, I know Advent starts next week, but today we're going to begin by talking about Santa and belief, or at least the way that Santa and belief are tied together in the movie Elf. If you're not familiar with the movie, you're missing out. It's, it's fantastic and hilarious, but, but we're not going to work through the whole plot this morning. Instead, we're just going to jump to the very end, the climax of the story, where Santa has crash-landed the sleigh in, in Central Park, and the Central Park Rangers are coming for him. He can't get the engine in his sleigh to power on because it runs off of belief. And people in the world have become cynical towards the belief that there's an old man with a large belly and a long white beard and a big bag full of toys flying around on Christmas granting wishes. A young boy named Michael recognizes what's going on and he appropriates Santa's list and brings it to where a news team has gathered to report on the alleged crashing of Santa's sleigh. There on live television, 
Michael begins to read out loud the names on Santa's list and what they want for Christmas. As people hear their names and are given proof of Santa, belief swells enough that Santa's sleigh is given the power it needs to outrun the big bad Central Park Rangers, and it flies off into the night, and Christmas is saved by the work of a young boy and the belief of the masses. A recap of the movie does it no justice. And I did that kind of on purpose. You should just really go watch it sometime. It's a great Christmas movie. But that said, I believe this part of the movie serves to point out a few things about some of the traps that we fall into when it comes to belief, when it comes to faith. We see it in stories like the one told in the movie Elf. We, we see it in George Michael's song, Faith, that came out in 1987, where he sings of, uh, of about turning down a seductive yet untrustworthy partner, crooning that he's got to have faith, that someone else better for him will come along, like, like it's his faith that will make it happen, like it's faith, belief in Santa that will keep the sleigh in the air and the magic pumping. Do we put pressure on ourselves to believe just enough, to have just enough faith so that the good things that we are trying to make happen actually manifest? We addressed this during our summer series, Bad Advice, but that doesn't stop it from being a slippery slope. Because it's so simple to fall into the trap that says, if I'd only had a little more faith. If I'd only had a little more faith, if I'd only had a little more faith, would have believed in myself a little more. I would have gotten that job I wanted. If I'd only had a little more faith, my brother wouldn't have gotten cancer. If I'd only believed more fully, God would have blessed me like he blessed that person. If I'd only had a little more faith, God would have brought the healing needed and my little girl wouldn't have passed away. There's a tendency that we have and it comes from the world around us and, and from the sinfulness inside of us and it absolutely comes from the enemy, the deceiver himself that tells us to look at things like faith and belief and come to the understanding that it is our faith, our ability to believe that supports and maintains the things that we hope for. We can come to the understanding that the promises that we have in Christ are secured by our ability to believe and further our ability to maintain that belief. So what happens when we doubt? What happens when we struggle? What happens when times are hard and when the world is dark and we feel lonely and abandoned? What happens when our hearts are breaking over the pain and suffering of this world and we look around and struggle to see how God could be who he claims to be when everything is so broken and those he claims to love are hurting? What happens when we doubt? What happens when belief is hard? Is it the strength of our belief that God makes God good? Is it the power of our faith that lifts God up like he's Santa's sleigh so that he can bring the good things that we want, the promises that he's made about? Is it our lack of faith that has caused the sleigh to crash so that we find ourselves in a cynical, broken place with belief, with faith that is wavering? What happens when we doubt? 
does doubt mean that we are no longer saved? Does struggling with faith mean that we are outside of God's promises? Does a stumble here and a falling out there mean that we are too weak to be considered one of God's elect? And now we find ourselves on the outside looking in? If it's up to us and the potency of our faith, we have a lot of problems, don't we? Things aren't looking so good because it's much easier to slip in our faith than it is to hold it down perfectly. We are prone to wander, Lord. We feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. How are we doing with that? As I wrestle with my struggle to believe, to have faith perfectly, I am so thankful for the Father that we find in the book of Mark, chapter 9. I've referenced him a few times in sermons. The father who brings his possessed son to the wandering teacher, the worker of miracles, the one who has been casting out demons. He brings his boy, his joy, the apple of his eye to this man who has proven that he can cure the boy's situation and says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus looks the man in the eye and says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. To which the Father responds with words that echo the cry of my own heart, the cry of the faithful yet fallen, the cry of the broken believer. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. We aren't told what takes place in that Father's heart. We aren't given a game plan of how Jesus worked in him, but what we are told is that Jesus healed his son. That God worked in that man's heart and helped his unbelief. And we know that God does the same for us today. We confess in the third article of the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the Holy Spirit. For the other two members of the Trinity, the Creed broke things down into at least a little more detail. But for the Holy Spirit, the Creed simply confesses that we believe that the Spirit is real, which implies belief that the Spirit is active and at work. In the Little Red Book, the explanation of Luther's small catechism, after each article of the creed is stated, there's a question asked. What does this mean? Here is the first part of the answer we find for the third article. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith, just as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, and preserves it in union with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. It does continue after that. But but God has helped our unbelief by sending us the Holy Spirit, through whom he has called us, enabled us to receive faith. We, we can't even believe without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're, we're dirty, rotten sinners. We're, we're broken from the beginning. We are lost in our old, our original nature, in the sin that we were conceived in. We, we don't have the ability to seek out the goodness of God. We don't have the ability to be worth saving. So God does the work. Through the Holy Spirit, he seeks us. Through the Holy Spirit, he enables us to receive him, to receive faith. Through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we can say yes to the gifts that God gives us. And through the Holy Spirit, our faith is preserved. 
It's not the potency of our faith that saves us, but the power of the Holy Spirit preserving our faith. Because ultimately, yes, it is faith that saves us. The Bible is clear. We are saved through faith in Christ, through belief in Christ Jesus and His death and resurrection. That is what ultimately saves us, ultimately what brings us into the family of God. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that we can have faith in the first place. And oh, how the Spirit is at work. I love this picture that we have of Jesus in our text this morning. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. In our failures, God has not given up on us. He is continuing to teach us, continuing to invest in us through His Spirit, and He is continuing to remind us of all that Jesus has said to us, all that Jesus has done for us. Through the working of the Holy Spirit, we are reminded of God's love for us. Through the working of the Holy Spirit, we are reminded of the grace that God has poured out over us. Through the working of the Holy Spirit, we are reminded of a God who wanted to know us so deeply that he sent his Son to earth. And through the working of the Holy Spirit, we are reminded of Jesus who came, who left utopia of heaven, the, the utopia of heaven, and came to live among the broken. And here he suffered alongside us. Here he suffered for us as we betrayed him and sent him up a hill to die on a tree. And up the hill he went with the cross over his shoulders. And with the weight of the timber, he carried the weight of the sins of the world. Though he was perfect, though he was blameless, they put nails through his hands and his feet and he was lifted up in naked vulnerability. And there on the cross, the Bible tells us that the perfect one became the sins of the broken. There on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself and he became them. And since our sin was taken from us and given to Christ, the wrath of God towards sin was poured out on Jesus instead of us. The punishment for sin, for our sin, was upon his shoulders. And it's the Holy Spirit that calls us to remember the words of Jesus as he hung there on the cross and said, It is finished. The penalty for sin has been paid. We can do no more on that account. There is nothing more to be done. Jesus has done the work. Christ has paid the price. And in that, Christian, preserved believer, we can rest. But Jesus didn't rest. He went into the grave and proclaimed to those long dead, those awaiting the end of times. There he proclaimed his victory. And then three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the power of the Holy Spirit and we are enabled to believe and say yes to the gifts that God has given us, then we are brought into the family of God. When we believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection, the dirty rags of our sinfulness are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at us, he does not see the stain of our sin, but the righteousness of his Son. When we are down and we are struggling, when we are hopeless, when our doubts assail us, when our faith feels weak, the Holy Spirit points us to the cross that we might remember all of the promises that are stored for us there. I love the Martin Luther quote. When Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. When the world points out our sinfulness and our brokenness and our doubt and floundering, may we be immeasurably comforted. 
For we are exactly who Christ died for, that we might be reconciled to God. That we might be brought into his family, that we might be the church, that we might be forgiven. Which are things that the third article of the Apostles' Creed affirms. We believe in the holy Christian church. We've kind of doctored that phrase a little bit, haven't we? When I was younger, I remember confessing that we believe in the holy Catholic church. We now substitute the word Christian because we're talking about the invisible church, the, the church made up of all believers. The Catholic, and Catholic, by definition, means including a wide variety of things or, or all-embracing, and, and so the term fit. But now, when we think of the Catholic church, we think of the church that is overseen by the Pope. That's not what the creed is talking about when it was written, so that's why we have, have seen a change in the verbiage. In the same way, John the Baptist didn't have a problem with infant baptism, so, having, or so some have taken to calling him John the Baptizer, so the Apostles' Creed wasn't intended to make a specific reference to a certain branch of belief. Instead, the creed is affirming that God's body is at work and that his church, his people, are called to join him in his mission. And in the creed, we confess that we are forgiven Something that it's important for us to hear over and over again, that God is not holding our sins against us, but that because of Christ's work on the cross, we are forgiven, and that it is important for us to repent and to come again and again before the Lord, asking for forgiveness, that we might be continually assured of what He has done for us and His intentions towards us. And in the Creed, we confess that there is a life after death. This is not the end for us. But that one day all will be made new. One day all of the imperfections that our sin has caused in the world will be redeemed. That the old will pass away and that God will make new what was once broken. And in this newness of life, in this newness of the creation, he will bring forth. We will live forever, sinless, no longer feeling sorrow, no longer feeling pain. No longer being tripped up in our sin, no longer being hurt and hurting others, no longer suffering, but living perfectly the lives that God has called us to as we venture forth into eternity with Him. Now, we don't know when that day is coming. What we do know is that we will not be told when that day is coming, but that we are to live in constant expectation of its arrival. We are called to live lives on mission with Christ. We are called to run from sin. We are called to resist temptation. We are called to live lives that glorify God. So let us strive to do that. Let us be the church as God has called us to be the church. And as we do that, let us remember the gift we have in the Holy Spirit who has enabled and preserved our faith, who points us to Jesus that when we fall from perfection, when we don't meet God's expectations or our own, that we might remember the one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who has forgiven us, and that we might find comfort in the church, the body of faith our Lord established, present here today, that the church might be an encouragement for us, that it might be a place of comfort, a place of hope, a place of forgiveness. And as we live in that forgiveness, hope, and promise, and the preservation of the Holy Spirit. May we be reminded that it is not the strength of our faith that is keeping Santa's sleigh in the air, as it were, but it is the Holy Spirit himself who is preserving our faith. That does not mean that we cannot walk away from our faith. 
does not mean that we can't say no. It does not mean that we cannot reject. What it means is that it is not on our strength that our faith is preserved. For faith isn't a grassroots movement where we are supporting God through our systems of belief. Faith is passed down from God to us and it is preserved in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. How thankful I am for a God that knows my weaknesses and loves me in spite of them and has worked on my behalf so that my struggles, my failures, my inabilities do not disqualify me from being called his son for he is the one who preserves our relationship. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, powerful, just, and wonderful God we serve. Amen.